She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and I am joined again today by Mr. Joe Lex, who was with us last week. Joe is our first guest on the podcast that had written in submitting a broad for actually many broads. Joe, you submitted, gosh, I feel like you actually submitted like 30 broads. And I read your spreadsheet and I was like, I think I need to have this guy guest with me. (laughs) We got to know you a little bit last week, so we know you're a retired physician amongst many other things, and you already have your podcast, All Bones Considered, which everybody should check out because Joe is covering fascinating characters uh, from the Laurel Hill Cemetery. But my question for you today is, what is your personal definition of the word broad? Broad is somebody who catches my attention in some way and makes me smile. Could be It could be ha. from a look. It could be from a move. It could be from a voice. It could be from a certain seeing something on stage, the way somebody acts. Mm. But if it, if it brings an inner smile to me and I kind of nod my head, that's, I guess that's my informal definition of a broad. The broads that I tend to think of are usually show business associated. First three that come to mm-hmm. mind are, of course, Elaine Stritch and um, mm-hmm. uh, Betty Comden and um, Anita O'Day. Those are sort of ah. the, the pinnacle well, of the broads that I think of. My mother was a broad. She was a dance oh, teacher. Yeah. Uh, gay men flocked around my mother. They absolutely loved her because she was always wearing sequins and feathers. Joe, I know that you listened to at least a few of our episodes on Broads You Should Know. Of the episodes you've listened to, which of those broads would you say is your favorite? And it better be one of my episodes. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I actually kind of lose track of who does what, to be honest with you. I mean, I like Sadie because Sadie is somebody, you know, Sadie Sadie Tanner Mazel Alexander is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. And I'm actually going to be doing a podcast about her. But she was a first in so many ways. The first um, African-American to get a, a, an accounting degree or a finance degree. And then she went on to law school and she married another lawyer. And then she went on and did so many other things. Uh, she broke a lot of glass ceilings. Yeah, listeners, if you haven't checked that episode out, I think Joe makes a good recommendation. We haven't visited Sadie for a while, so. Well, Joe, today you have brought me abroad, who I know nothing about. Who have you brought me today? I can almost guarantee you that nobody knows about her. Her name is Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullet Bo Barlow. That is a name if I ever heard one. (laughs) Her nickname was Commando Mary. Oh my gosh. She sounds like a broad I'm going to (laughs) like. The odd thing is, we were talking about Wikipedia earlier. She does not have a Wikipedia page. Her great-great-grandmother, Elizabeth Sandwith Drinker, has a Wikipedia page. Two of her aunts, Catherine Ann Drinker Janvier and Cecilia Bow, have Wikipedia pages. Do you know who Cecilia Bow was? No. She's a broad you should know. She was (laughs) one of the society, high society portrait painters in the late 19th century. 
And Cecilia is related to Arbrod. She's the grandmother. Cecilia is the aunt, aunt. of Arbrod. Cecilia's sister was Amy Ernesta Drinker. She married Henry Sturgis Drinker, who has his own Wikipedia page. She had two older brothers, Henry Sandwith Drinker, who was a lawyer and a musicologist, and he brought the, the Trap family to the United States and put them up. The Trap family? Like, the Trap um, family, like Sound of Music. Sound of Oh, my gosh. Her older brother, Philip, invented the Iron Lung. Oh, my gosh. Her younger brother, Cecil, was the guy who started the Department of Public Health at Harvard University. With his <laughs> wife, Catherine Rotan Drinker, uh, the two of them um, did the work on the Radium Girls. They researched the Radium mm -hmm. Girls. And you know that story. I know that story, but we have not talked about them on this podcast yet. I'm actually wanting to do an episode on them sometime soon. It's a good story. But, but you will run across Cecil and Catherine Rotan Drinker. Another sister-in-law, Sophie who was Henry's wife, was the founder of Women's Musicological and Gender Studies. Wow. She has a younger sister, Catherine Drinker Bowman, who was an author, an award-winning author. Her first husband's second wife was Louise Bryant. Oh my God, this broad is connected. She is so connected to this so This woman, many she's people. like the Kevin Bacon, as far as having connections on yes. Wikipedia. Joe, you know what this means. You have to write her Wikipedia page. Um, I haven't had good luck writing Wikipedia pages so far. I've had a couple rejected. Needless to say, she came from a very well-placed family in Philadelphia. Mm. Her father was an engineer who was the first graduate of Lehigh University to actually take over the university. So he was president of the university. So they all lived in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for a few years, which is where Lehigh University is located. Except that by this time, Ernesta who was an absolutely gorgeous woman. She was an absolutely gorgeous child. Cecilia mm. Bowe, who specialized in society paintings, did her first painting of Ernesta when she was two years old. Oh my gosh, that is so young to sit for a painting. <laughs> she said, Cecilia <clears throat> Bowe, she has some of the most beautiful bone structure I have ever seen. She said she will never lose that beauty, and she didn't. Cecilia ended up painting her nine times. In her, her in her whole life? Wow. In her whole life, yeah. And yet her, her younger sister, Catherine Drinker Bowman, the author, Cecilia looked at her and said, she's unpaintable. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be so horrible to hear. <laughs> she said, with, with that forehead, she'll go to Bryn Mawr and write books. Oh, and she did, right? <laughs> and she, well, she didn't go to Bryn Mawr. She went to Haverford. <laughs> Which is close, <laughs> which is close. But yeah, she ended up writing books. So she did the usual things that young girls did at that time. I should say not only was she beautiful, she was a tomboy. She was a long-legged tomboy. Mm. She could outrun, even though her brothers all played football and were very athletic, she could outrun them and she could outclimb them. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> she did not want to go to school. She mm. had home tutors. On the first grand tour they took when she was 16 years old and a little sister was 11, the marriage proposal started coming. Mm. Did she not want to go to school? Like she didn't, I, what was the reasoning? Did it she say? She didn't have time for it. She had other things to do. Uh. She was very strong-willed. She refused to attend boarding school. She said she was having too much fun with her friends. So most of her instructions came from tutors in the home. She went to England and France when she was 16 and immediately started fending off marriage proposals. 
in England and France. On the boat. Oh my gosh. Is she still 10? How old is she? She's 15 now. 15. 16. I'm sorry, she's 16. Her mother said she stopped counting after the first 50 marriage proposals. Are these just guys who just meet her on this? Like, they're not actual courtee. Like, they didn't actually court her, right? They just... These are people who are stunned by her beauty. Um, Her sister, the writer, said she doesn't seem to realize how pretty she is. When she was 12 years old, she spent some time with some friends up in Maine, and she came back talking with a broad A and started to drop her R's. Hmm. This drove one of her brothers crazy for the rest of their lives. He started calling her Mrs. Asterbilt, combination of Aster and Vanderbilt. Was it like a societal class thing? Was she like trying to uplevel herself? Like, or what, who spoke that way? Uh, mostly people in Boston. Mm-hmm. She didn't like the Philadelphia accent. She preferred the Boston accent and she kept it for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Now, she spent a lot of time with her aunt. Everybody just called her aunt, the, the painter. They called her Bo. She didn't like being stared at. She said she felt like she was something in a zoo. She found it really hard to start conversations with people because they just sort of stared at her, (laughs) slack-jawed. I saw one description. It said, her beauty had marched past the comfortable point. Mm. That's a nice little (laughs) phrase. Now, she did start keeping diaries at a young age. She used a backhand slant that was very fashionable to women at that time. And at 22, she told her sister, Catherine, she says, I don't ever propose to be bored. And I'm going to keep out of boring situations. <laughs> she did a damn good job of it. She did spend some time at school in Paris. She studied some sociology and economics. She got in a semester of grad school at Redcliffe somehow, which is really weird since she didn't have a bachelor's degree. The most she would say is, well, Felix Frankfurter had something to do with it. You know, the Supreme Court justice. She had apparently made friends with the Supreme Court justice. And he just got so her anyway, so she could take classes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so anyway, 1915. She is 27 years old. She met Philadelphian William Christian Bullitt Jr. William Christian Bullitt was from another Philadelphia family. Um, He was born in 1891, the year before she was born. His grandfather was John Christian Bullitt, founder of the law firm Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath. Now, Bullitt was also a rebel. He wouldn't go to elite boarding schools. He wouldn't go to Groton. He said, every Groton fellow I know is a snob. So he went to a local school. He did go to Yale in 1908 and with his friend Cole Porter was active in the Dramatic Association. Um, (laughs) Then he went to Harvard Law School, but he found out he really didn't like the law. So as soon as his father died, he just got out of law (laughs) and decided he wanted to be a journalist. So in 1914, Bullitt and his mother went on a tour of Russia. They left when war broke out. But by then, he had met Lincoln Steffens and Upton Sinclair. So that's that was what he wanted to be. Wow. And uh, he had his own column. He was making 10 bucks a week. <laughs> and they got married. So it was a little odd marriage. I mean, Wait, she what was year made, was this? What, what this is 19, 1916 that they got married. So he is sent to cover the war from Germany. Now, Ernesto always referred to him as Billy. Billy took Ernesto with him to Germany to cover the war. Walter Walter Lippmann said he really was one of the sharpest of the American correspondents. She took up writing and she kept her personal diary up. 
as this is just exactly what her great great grandmother had done. Her great great grandmother, I mentioned, was uh, Elizabeth Sandwith Drinker. If you look that up, you'll find out that she kept a diary in Philadelphia for more than 30 years that she literally intended for her great grandchildren. But it became the source of so much historical material about what was happening in Philadelphia during the revolution. It's one of the primary sources that people go to to find out what was happening in Philadelphia. Wow. So her great-great-granddaughter is doing the same thing now during the war. Before they come back from Germany, everything gets confiscated except her diary. Huh. All of her husband's notes were taken. No, you can't bring those back. But, you know, she was just a woman with a diary. So what could possibly just be Just a woman there? with a diary. <laughs> 25 years old, and she publishes a book called An Uncensored Diary from Central Empires. You can actually find it as a PDF. Her mm -hmm. writing style is delightful. She tells of an occasion when they went to an official dinner and she sat next to this short Englishman and had a wonderful chat with him for more than an hour. And he was very talkative. And after the dinner, uh, she, she said to people, who was that man I was talking to? And they looked at her. She said, oh, that was Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, my gosh. Now, in 1917, she gave birth to a son, but the baby died after two days. Oh. And that was the only delivery that I know she had. Did it say why the baby died? Did no, it... I couldn't find any record on that. By this time, her husband had been made head of the Public Ledger's Washington Bureau. So he was talking to Edward House, who was President Woodrow Wilson's chief advisor. And eventually, William became Assistant Secretary of State, where he was considered an expert on the Russian Re Revolution. So Whoa. in 1918, they went to the Versailles Peace Conference. And he made it clear he was strongly opposed to Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War. And when he mm. read the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, he publicly, res he publicly resigned. He condemned the peace as, quote, a tragic, a tragic mockery of the principles of self-determination. So his next job was as managing editor of film stories at Paramount Pictures. And in 1921, he met fellow journalist Louise Bryant, you ever seen huh. the movie Reds with Lauren or with Warren Beatty and um, Diane Keaton? No. Diane Keaton plays Louise Bryant. Oh, I've got to watch it. Reds. Oh, yeah. So he met Louise Bryant and started to travel with her. They moved to Turkey. It broke them up. Ernesta and Billy broke up. He broke up their marriage for this other chick, though. For yeah, for Louise Bryant. Where do you have any information about how Ernesta felt about all that? Uh, well. Her next step, <laughs> Okay. she was 31 years old, uh, and her next step was to move to New York. Now, she rented an apartment in the former Stuyvesant Fish House, Gramercy Park in New York, same building where her Aunt Bo lived. Ernesta was still her aunt's pet. Now she took on a career as the in-house decorator of a fashionable residential architect named Harry Thomas Lindbergh, and it was during this time she took graphic artist Rockwell Kent as one of her lovers. Mm. Rockwell Kent wrote her many love letters. They're preserved. They're available for researchers at Georgetown University. He was obsessed with her. Listen to this. He says, sweetheart, I cannot write. For nearly two hours, I have sat here abandoned to my thoughts of you. I am drunk with the memory of you. Ernesta, Ernesta, I cry as if my cry for you might bring you to me. Dear girl, I'm enveloped by your loveliness. 
That is intense. He fell hard. Yes. Did she return that that enthusiasm? We don't have copies of her letters. She kept all of his letters, and they're available for researchers. But as an interior designer, her crowning glory was the River House. This is along the East River between 52nd, 53rd Streets in New York. 26-story Art Deco masterpiece, which at one time actually had a pier where the residents could dock their yachts. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's like high high level clientele. <laughs> they once turned away Gloria Vanderbilt when she tried to uh, purchase a condominium. How did she get into interior? Did she like she didn't study it or anything? She just study it. I know. That's what's crazy. She just was like, I think I have a knack for this and just started doing it. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Oh my now, despite the attention for Rockwell Kent, I mean, Rockwell Kent was all over her. Yeah. She took a liking to the next door neighbor. There was a composer <laughs> named Samuel Latham Mitchell Barlow II. He had bought the remodeled brownstone house next door. They were the same age. They had the same interests. He graduated from Harvard in 1914. He studied at Juilliard. Uh, he was a lieutenant during the war. That is so funny that she turned down... Kent, like that she didn't pursue Kent, Kent and then <laughs> I'll tell you, Kent was a snake with women. Oh. Kent had a reputation of burning through women. So then Ernesto was very smart. She was she like knew knew what was what. Ernesto knew what was going on. They got married in Aunt Bo's apartment in May of nineteen twenty eight and they stayed together for more than fifty years. Oh it was a good match. Now Barlow was also independently wealthy. He continued to write music. He was actually the first American composer to have an opera performed at the Opera Comique in Paris in 1935. Now, Ernesta was decorating and she was writing. There was a play that she wrote. There's a review in the New York Times in August of 1935. The play is called Thy People. It was at the Red Barn Theater, Locust Valley, Long Island. I know Red Barn Theater. Red Barn Theater is still around, I think. I think it is, too. Wow. I didn't know it was that old. It, it was called a problem drama. It retold the old story of Ruth and Naomi, the title reflected in the biblical verse, Thy people shall be my people. She wrote articles on travel and fashion for Vogue and Atlantic. And when she was in Europe, she would go hunting stags and foxes in France and Ireland. Uh, <laughs> sometimes she would send souvenirs like a stag's hoof back to the United States. I shot this. and you know, to like her aunt, to like her friends, her friends just like open the mail and they have a yeah. There's, there's a hoof. Yeah. Well, you have to understand this is this this family is strange. The oldest brother, when they were staying up in Massachusetts along the shore, he would go out and catch sharks, and he would oh cut gosh. he would cut the sharks' jaws out and display them on the patio. So at one point there were as many as thirty five shark jaws on on the patio of their summer I mean, home. All, the, the whole family is like we're talking about like upper class in terms of moneyed folks, right? Like Moneyed folks and connections you wouldn't believe. Just so many connections. Ernesto was making $75,000 a year in the 30s during the Depression as an interior designer. Oh, my gosh. And she couldn't balance a checkbook. When she was in Paris one time, she cabled her secretary to see if she could afford to buy a hat. And the secretary said, uh, you have $35,000 in your checking account. <laughs> So yes, you can you can buy the hat. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so funny. While she was doing all this design work, she had taken her aunt's name. She was now Ernesta Drinker Bow. 
Then she took Barlow's name. She was now Ernesta Barlow. So in December of 1940, the Carnegie Institute of Pittsburgh announced that visitors to its survey of American paintings had selected Cecilia Bowe's child with nurse, Ernesta, as the most popular of the 367 canvases in competition. That picture of her when she was two years old? That one. That one out of 367 canvases. You know what number two was? You know what the runner-up was? This is my own by Ernesto's former lover, Rockwell Kent. (laughs) (laughs) I bet she had a laugh over that. (laughs) I'm sure she had a wonderful laugh over that. So anyway, when when Japan attacked, here comes the good part. Up until now, it's just been building up. When Japan (laughs) attacked Pearl Harbor, December 1941, she said, what can I do to help? She decided she would do a radio program. Hmm. Her friends did not think so. They said her upper class accent would drive people away. She, would de- she was determined. She started a five-minute series called You and the War. It's presented as a local New York program, and soon it became syndicated across the country. It was expanded to 15 minutes, and somebody decided that this woman with the very proper accent would be Commando Mary. <laughs> That's where the nickname comes from. Her agenda, oh my gosh. Her agenda was to get women involved in wartime occupations, salaried oh. and voluntary war jobs available to 45 million women in factories, farm homes, laborers, offices. And as Commando Mary, she recruited guests to talk about women's war efforts. This program became wildly popular, even with men who flooded the stations with letters lauding Ernesta's distinctive voice, her clarity and directness, her charming cadence and humor and personality. One New York surgeon actually said, yours is the perfect radio voice. So Commando Mary, a woman known for her physical beauty that stopped men in her tracks, had become a radio star. (laughs) (laughs) Did they, uh, people knew the Commando Mary, they knew who it was, right? It wasn't like a moniker that she hid behind? No, she did not hide behind it at all. It was just a catchy name. She she visited war plants all over the country. She talked with women, brought their stories back, had guest stars, almost all of them women. Uh, she had a student from Radcliffe. She had First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, for three years, she crisscrossed the country, speaking to men's groups about the value of universal military training. Um, after the war, she testified in hearings before the Committee on Military Affairs in 1945, late 1945. She was representing the Citizens Committee for Military Training of Young Men, national organization that actually endorsed universal military training. A couple of her quotes, you're going to love this because you talk about somebody who did not suffer fools wisely. One of the things that happened, uh, she's, you know, she was at this meeting and somebody had organized a protest against her. And afterwards, hmm. someone came up to her and said, you know, that man's been around this place the whole week. And we just found out he's been drumming up trade for his side and has brought all his friends in here to oppose you. I said, well, that's all right. Well, why didn't you think to do the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> and at another point, Delmer Short, who's a representative from Missouri, asked her a kind of silly question. She said, Mr. Qu- Mr. Short, you're asking a question you are not providing. You are not proving anything. I would. I would rather take General Eisenhower's word on that, with all due respect, than Mr. Shorts, who is not a military man. I'm sure through no fault of his own. <laughs> <laughs> and this this guy Short kept interrupting her, and finally she said, "I do not know who is testifying, Mr. Short. You or I." 
<laughs> Dewey Short actually went on to be the um, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee in the 1950s. And they, they tried to trip her up. They said, are you for women's rights? The, the women's rights movement. Remember the women's rights amendment was proposed way back in the 40s? And they mm-hmm. asked if she was for the Equal Rights Amendment. You know, she said, yes, of course I am. I said, well, you have enough confidence to accept whatever Congress decides is right for the security of our country. She said, I will not, Mr. Congressman. I do not think I will always accept entirely what Congress decides. If they decide against this, that will not convince me it is wrong for the country. Mm. And then the big question, Good. should women be called up to do universal service? She says, I do not think it is at all necessary to include the women at this time. I think if we did, what we would get out of it would be a Girl Scout organization where young folks were trained to eat K-rations in the rain. It's, hmm. it's, it's just delightful to read her testimony. Interesting. She was on Eleanor Roosevelt's radio show in 1951. The former first lady asked the obvious question. She said, where'd the name Commando Mary come from? She said, I never could quite discover The program was supposed to be a program on American industry at war and how women were to get into war jobs. But I always felt rather ashamed and humiliated at being called Commando Mary, considering what commando meant in the war. But when the farmers began to name their cows after me, well, I began to think I must be a success. You know what's so interesting about that perspective about whether women should be involved in war training? It seemed to be a, a bit the opposite over in Russia. You know, we did a whole episode on the night witches, but they, but it seemed, but, but women were much more eager to join the fray, it seems like, than, or at least Ernesta, maybe her class uh, kept her from wanting that. But the, the odd thing is that none of her brothers and her sister served in the military. Mm. None of her family did. So that was, that was kind of odd. Isn't that kind of unusual for like a, for an East Coast wealthy, fi- I mean, don't, didn't people serve? Am I thinking of that incorrectly? Isn't, wasn't it very common to okay. have they, like they, generals in the family? They didn't serve active. Um, the oldest brother actually was a member of the First City Troop. First City Troop is a very distinguished ancient National Guard unit here in Philadelphia. They have their own mm. armory. And mm. To be a member of the First City Troop is really something special. But at the mm. time that her older brother was in the First City Troop, they did not get called up. So he didn't do active duty. And the other brothers mm. didn't either. Now, Samuel Barlow had this beautiful house in Gramercy Park. He converted the fourth story to an acoustically perfect music room. And they started having Wednesday night salons. So for 20 or 30 years, they had these salons. It was New York society. You'd go to this salon and you might run into Artur Rubinstein or Leontine Price or W. Somerset Mom, Felix Frankfurter, Paul Robeson. 1971, the money is starting to run out. They've had several hundred gatherings. They decided the building is impossible to keep up. They're both in their 80s. And they had the last one, which was covered by the New York Times. She said, this is the first party in which I've known everyone. The guests are people who really care about music. The entertainment Mm -hmm. was supplied by the Juilliard String Quartet. The reporter noted that Mrs. Barlow's white hair, by this time her hair had turned pure white, Mm -hmm. was arranged with a large tortoise, tortoise comb and stones glittered at neck and ears. The real jewels were sold several years ago. Mm. Last year, Mrs. Barlow saw a woman at the Metropolitan Opera wearing one of her former necklaces and went up and greeted her with, that's a lovely necklace. I wore it for 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) 
They sold oh. this apartment by now, like I say, they're both in their 80s. They ended up living at a place literally across the street from Philadelphia. It's called Springfield Residence in Winmore. Uh, Ernesta died in 1981. Samuel died the following year. They are both buried in the Drinker family plot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, which is where I ran into her. What is their tombstone like? Is it very fancy? Very plain. And it's, really? and it's all of them are buried together. Two of the brothers, the sister, the sisters-in-law, Cecilia Bow is buried there. And it's, it's, each of them has an identical small stone. And it's on a hillside that I have been instructed I cannot bring visitors to when I give a tour if the grass is the least bit wet, because it really is sort of a steep incline where they are buried. And, you know, they're worried that people are going to slip. So here I have really one of the most interesting people in the cemetery. Uh, To me, she is the most interesting so far. And I can't really bring people to see her if I'm giving a formal tour. But you bet if I just have folks out at the cemetery, I take them to see Ernesta. Joe, would you call her, would you call her a socialite? Oh, definitely. Would that be be the correct way to describe her? If you look in the newspapers during her Mm -hmm. teens, you'll find her name when all of her friends had their coming out parties. Mm. She never had one. Because she wasn't interested in just just getting married? She wasn't, yeah. She wasn't putting herself on the market. That's, That's what a lot of those coming out parties were. This is introducing our daughter to society so men can look at her. Ernesta knew what she looked like, and she took advantage of it when she had to. But she knew she would never have any difficulty attracting a man. You know, I'm kind of surprised, though, her parents like let her do her own thing in that way. I feel like a lot of parents of that time period, you know, they insisted on on kind of, you know, for, for better or worse, selling out their daughters and getting them married her, off. Her to father other and people. mother had made an agreement early in the marriage. This this is this is also very strange. The father. Henry had fallen in love with Cecilia Bow and proposed to her, mm. and she said no. So he turned around and proposed to her sister, Amy Ernesta. <laughs> the deal they made was that he would take care of raising the boys, Ernesta, Nettie, would take care of raising the girls. Her father was intimidated by Ernesta. <laughs> it's in the in the biography that Catherine wrote. It's called Family Portrait. Mm-hmm. She talks about how their father had a hard time talking to Ernesta. That's interesting. I don't know whether he was just stunned. He was trying to figure out why, where this beautiful woman came from in a, mm. in a group of average-looking individuals. I mean, this <laughs> stunning, stunningly beautiful woman. If you go to YouTube, there's something called The Strange Case of Ernesta by Cecilia Bow, and it is an art historian talking about a painting of Ernesta. That's Cecilia did. Remember, she painted her nine times. Mm-hmm. This is one that ended up at Hilldale College. And it, it's there's a fascinating story behind it. But when you look at her picture, I don't know if you had a chance to look at any of her pictures online. Wow, she was so good. Oh, yeah. Get some art historian to talk about her. One guy actually called her the best female painter ever. Yeah, these are stunning. Audience, I have a bunch of these pictures um, that Cecilia did and then of Ernesta up on the website as well as her books. And, and um, I'm going to post that YouTube video too that Joe mentioned. So make sure and check out the website, broadsyoushouldknow.com. I'm going to have all this great stuff of Ernesta's up there. If you want to know more about Ernesta, 
and you find more, let me know because I think I've read everything there is to read. The one thing I have not done is make a pilgrimage to Georgetown University, which is where all of her diaries and the letters from Rockwell Kent are kept. Joe, she's a great broad. I'm so <laughs> glad you brought her. Yeah. And I dare say, I think you're quite qualified to write her Wikipedia page. So maybe I'll try to keep convincing you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you seem yeah. like the local resident expert on her. <laughs> yeah, but that happens every time I do a podcast. Like for two days, I am the one of the 10 world experts on somebody for two days. And then, you know, it's off and I'm off to somebody else, but Ernesta has stuck with me. And the odd thing is, I mean, would, does she meet my definition of abroad? Yes, she would catch my attention and she would make me smile. Joe, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for bringing us Ernesta, Commando Mary. She is just fantastic. And uh, it's been a joy getting to learn more about her and, and talk with you today. So thank you for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. To learn more about Ernesta Drinker, Commando Mary, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. We've got all the paintings her aunt did of her and some photos, as well as other great stuff that Joe found in all his research. While you're on the website, click on over to the About page to learn more about Joe Lex, our guest today. Joe has his own podcast, All Bones Considered, and I highly recommend checking it out. Also, have you followed us on social yet? If you haven't, get on it. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest abroad, which is how I found Joe, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast and broads in general? If so, spread the word. Share us with your friends and family. Leave us a review. Those things really help new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really loved Ernesta's story, then there's a couple other Broads episodes you ought to check out, too. You'll probably really love Nellie Bly, Hetty Lamar, and Ada Lovelace. All right, see you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>